1: Hey friends, today's guest is singer, songwriter, and multi-instrumentalist, John Oates. Together we take a deep dive into the writing, recording, and inspiration behind the smash hit number one single, Maneater, taken from the 1982 Hall & Oates album, H2O. To say Hall & Oates are prolific would be a gross understatement. These guys were churning out album after album, and hit after hit, and not surprisingly, John said they never cut demos of their material. They would have an idea, be it a basic one, or something fairly worked out, and they'd take it in the studio and run with it. There was no time for demos, and with their track record, it was obvious they didn't need to sketch their ideas beforehand. I told John that I feel Hall & Oates perfectly blended their R&B, soul, rock and roll Motown sound with the technology that was happening in 1982. Maneater is a timeless classic a song that only shows its age to me by the calendar months that have passed. The production and mix are stellar, and the use of metaphors for the lyrical inspiration is truly awesome. So for all this and a whole lot more, don't touch that dial. Hey, hey, have you heard Krista makes a podcast? Hey, hey, have you heard Krista makes a podcast? Hey, hey, have you heard A podcast. Hey, hey, have you heard Krista Makes a podcast? Hello, John. How are you? I'm fine, Chris. Where are you? Because I know where I am. Where am I? I'm in the Knoxville, Tennessee area. I was I was just about to ask you, where are you, sir? I'm in Nashville, so. Oh, we're just up the road. We should we should have met in the middle in Crossville or somewhere (laughs) and had lunch. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I, I gotta tell you, this has been an absolute blast. Uh, Revisiting this song uh, Revisiting you and and your career I could sit here and and roll off statistics I'm looking at them in my notes The audience surely knows uh, who you are And uh, who Hall of Notes is And uh, this is an absolute pleasure Three days ago on May 19th The new reggae version came out Which is an absolute trip It's a reimagining really of the song Uh, You collaborated with Rome Ramirez From Sublime with Rome And tell us a little bit about that collaboration collaboration. Uh,
2: yeah, Rome. Uh, Rome is a new friend of mine. Uh, we met through uh, his uh, his manager and good buddy Mike Mike Cheese Brown, uh, who's a, an amazing guy. And we we actually Mike and I met through the car thing. We both. Uh, enjoy uh, collect car collecting vintage cars and things and then I met Rome through him and I went to Kingston, Jamaica uh, and recorded uh, with the, some of the legends of reggae. the guys, Some of the guys who played with Marley and Toots and Peter Tosh and people like that uh, through a mutual friend of mine who's a Jamaican reggae producer. Oh, oh here she
0: comes Whoa oh, here she comes Watch out, boy She's gonna chew you and time. Oh, she
2: the reason that we did all that was because originally when I came up with the chorus idea for Man Eater, I wrote it as a reggae song, way back in the early 80s. Uh, and Daryl and I got together and we, you know, we adapted more of a, you know, obviously that this, if you hear the single that, you know, the, the big hit, uh, it has a more of a Motown feel and, you know, so... That was Daryl's idea to put that different bass line on it. But in the back of my mind, I always thought that one day I would, I would record this as a reggae song and take it kind of back to its uh, original inspiration. And so this was a great opportunity to do it uh, with really uh, authentic, in a most authentic and, uh, way with with the real cats who played on the real reggae records
1: well like i said everybody check it out it is really a reimagining of the song it really really takes you on a a different ride is that how you initially heard it uh was was more like it is or or well all i had originally was the chorus you know the oh here Mm
2: -hmm. she comes kind of thing Uh, yeah and that was, and I did it with a reggae feel. But you know, as I said, Daryl and I changed it to to make it into what you know most people recognize. But when I when I when I went to do it again, I wanted to do it again. I not only did I want to bring it back to the reggae feel, but I also wanted to treat it as though I was a completely you know, not involved with the original song. I know that's hard to think, (laughs) right? I wanted to take myself out, you know, out of that place and just say, if I was just another artist and I wanted to do a version of Maneater in a reggae style, what would I do? So I tried to really just uh, basically, and I rewrote some of the melodies. I rewrote some changes. Uh, I changed the hook a little bit. And so I just wanted to make it my own, you know, my own in, in two th- you know, in 2023. Uh, so uh, it's not always easy to divorce yourself from yourself.
1: <laughs> well, going back and listening, I've, I've heard this song, I can't even count how many times over the years. But when I put it under the microscope here, I'm, I'm looking at it differently. And going back and listening to this track, one of the first things that really stood out to me was how prolific you guys were <laughs> you know start though all of the 1970s but really around 77 when rich girl hit kiss on my list in 1980 private eyes in 81 i can't go for that 1981 what and i always try to when i'm researching the episodes look for a, a, an early demo i couldn't find one did you guys cut a demo for manny do you do you recall we never cut a demo for anything <laughs> How could you? Because you were too busy, right?
2: We um, we would write the songs, and then we'd go in the studio and record them. Wow. There was no demos made. Um, certain songs, we may have cut a track in the studio and then maybe lived with it for a night or so and just said, yeah, you know, let's go do it again. Or, or hey, it's a pretty good starting point, but maybe we should do it this way. But no, there was no demos. It was just write the song and, and uh, record it.
1: I kind of figured that, again, with how prolific you guys were how, and as much touring as you were doing then. How would these guys have, have sat around and do demos? You got the idea, you're going to go cut it. So you come in with this this reggae idea and, and Daryl says, hey, maybe we should uh, make it a little more Motown. Do you recall that exact time period and those talks?
2: Yeah, I, I recall it very, very clearly. Um he came over to my apartment um, and I played it for him. And he said, man, I like this idea. And he sat down at the piano. And the first thing he did was go don donk 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 donk, 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 And that was his feel. He said, you know, he goes, I think this feels more like a Hall & type song. Uh, he goes, he goes, I'm not sure that reggae is gonna be the right thing for us us to do together. Uh, and I agreed with him. You know, he was right. He was definitely right. Obviously, history has proven that. You know, I always like to joke, I'm sure glad I listened to him. Um, <laughs> you know. But uh but yeah, and then so the song began to evolve that way. Um, and then it became the song that you've heard you you know, you hear on the record. Uh but here again, in the back of my mind, it was always, you know. Th- there was always this initial inspiration that i wanted to re revisit or recapture and uh and i i knew that i sure i could go in the studio with a bunch of guys and do a quasi reggae version you know yeah but i but i really wanted to do it off in the most authentic uh way uh possible and luckily enough um i had a, a good friend who who had worked with a lot of these reggae legends and uh you know he said hey there's only one way to make a reggae record man go to go to jamaica and i said yeah i said you don't have to twist my arm i'm there let's do it so it was april two years ago that we went to um jamaica and did it
1: that is great well you guys were one of those acts one of those bands to me that perfectly bridged the technology of the 80s. When I go back and listen to your music, uh, especially this track, yeah, it sounds 80s uh, to me. A lot of the reason is I I was there, I lived it. I knew when it was released, but you know, a lot of my favorite bands, I'm not going to sit here and, and, and mention any of them, uh, Cheap Trick. Uh, <laughs> they would. Uh, Rolling Stones is another one that comes to mind, but they would release records uh, in the 80s, and they were trying to get up with the technology, and a lot of it just sounds really forced and dated now. You guys seamlessly did it to me. You know, you were experiencing things with like the, the Lynn drum machine and, and uh, the DX7, and, and you were using these instruments, but it, it still had that backbeat swing, that Motown, that RB soul uh, that, that you were known for, and that, and that rock and roll. It was a perfect mesh. It still does not sound forced to this ear.
2: Well, so thank you for the compliment. You know, the, the, the technology is a tool. There always, have always been tools. Just like a, an electric guitar is, is, a, is one tool, and an acoustic guitar is a different tool. And, you know, a grand piano is not the same as a, a World's Electric piano. It's really about using the right instrument and the right tool for their job you know you don't use a hammer to, to put a screw in a wall you know and so we when we wrote the songs there was no preconceived notion that we should let the tools you know dictate the type of record we were making they were only to enhance what we were doing um, and I think you know I think we've, we we did that pretty well and during that period of time especially as the 80s moved on into the digital era It was like the end of the analog era. The analog recording was never going to get any better. And digital technology was in its infancy and just starting. And because we were so popular, we had all these companies like, uh, you know, like you said, Lindrum, uh, Kurzweil, uh, you know, uh, all these, these polyphonic sampling synthesizers. They were all they were just basically giving us this stuff. Hey, try this. Check this out. See what you can do with this. And so that's what we did. We, um, we tried to use, uh, use these new, new, new sounds that had just become available and these new technologies, but we didn't let the technology dictate what we were doing. It was just right. here again to enhance the song.
1: Yeah, there's sometimes I'll turn on my Korg, my keyboard, and I'll just go to some sound I've never you know, dialed up. There's thousands of sounds in here. And you'll just play a chord pattern. And just something about that sound inspires you to do something. So if you're using the technology as a tool and not a crutch, uh, it can be, be so useful. You never know what you'll get out of it.
2: Well, you know, I'll give you a perfect example of that is I bought a Roland uh, synthesizer. I can't remember which model it was. Uh, but it was my first synthesizer because I'm not much of a keyboard player, but I can, I can dabble a little bit. And uh, I had it in the house and I, it had an arpeggiator function. And I didn't even know what an arpeggiator was. Um, so I just hit the button and the preset that happened to be on the keyboard was this tonal wood, wood block sound. And so that's so I went and I played this melody with one finger. I just went, and it became the core melody of out of touch Oh, wow. And, but it was because it was on. It was literally the thing that happened when I hit the arpeggiator button. I, yes. you know, I'd love to say that it was some divine inspiration, but it wasn't. It just happened. <laughs> uh, but it, it was a, a cool, unique sound, and it became the theme of uh, basically of the, of the song Out of Touch.
1: So producer Neil Kernan, when he, do you recall when he heard the song for the first time? Yeah, Neil Kernan engineered it, you and mixed it. Right, right. So did you guys do any, I know you didn't do demos, but did you come in like pre-production? Like, hey, we got this song and, and did Neil have anything to do with it? I, I know there was also a co-writer with you and Daryl, Sarah Allen, on, the, yeah. on this track. He worked on the lyrics. Mm-hmm. Right, right. So what was Neil's role uh, when, when you came in with this track, if you recall?
2: Neil was really, you know, Neil was, was pretty much a, um, an engineer. Um, okay. He wasn't that creatively involved in, in the music itself. He was there to help us get the sounds right. And, and uh, he was a great, great engineer. But he definitely was, um, he was definitely there to, to just kind of, you know, Daryl and I were both uh, very similar in that we didn't want to get bogged down in the technology. We were all about the band, the playing, the arrangements, the singing. And we wanted to focus on that and have someone behind the board who could, uh, you know, have, have it so covered that we didn't have to worry about things like that. You know, and of course yeah. we talked about sounds and, you know, things like that, what we would use reverbs and delays or whatever. But we weren't really into sampling at that point. We weren't really into the sampling until we got to the Big Bamboo album. And that's when, when the, the, the transition between analog and digital began to happen. And we were able to incorporate some of those newer technologies.
1: Yeah, that's when some of the first computers were starting to do digital editing and things mm-hmm. where you could start to move stuff around. It's nowhere near where it is today. But yeah, uh, John, I, I want to get into this track. I'm I'm so excited. There's so much to talk about. It's four minutes and 31 seconds. The intro, 32 bars total. It's 43 seconds, this intro, but it's the perfect setup for this song. It's basically the chorus progression here. The first eight bars, it's that Lindrum and bass. And man, the bass tone on this is just ripping second eight bars uh there's like wind chimes or tubular bells i think they're played on a synth panned off to the left it's almost sounds like a wood block with some echo and delay that's happening here and another synth that's panned off right kind of doing this flutter it's almost something from a, a suspenseful uh a, a movie scene or something like you're getting chased Bar 17 through 24, the staccato upstroke guitar, and I wrote in my notes here, John, kind of with a reggae feel, comes in on bar 21, and we hear the sax for the first time there. There's a high one note synth part that's running underneath everything here, that B note. And again, I wrote, use the word, it's suspenseful and haunting. It's a running theme in all the choruses. bars 25 through 32 the sax solo is playing kind of an improvised version of the chorus melody i'm calling that musical foreshadowing here and then we get this big snare hit uh, that uh, real drums come in on verse one Recall how this whole came about. It's a pretty long intro, but it ju- it, to me, it's the perfect setup.
2: Um, Wow. I'm glad you broke it down because I could never break it down that well. Um, (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) I forget how all that stuff happened. It just happened through being surrounded by great, uh, great musicians. Uh, You know, when you talk about the bass, that's T-Bone, Tom T-Bone Walt playing that bass. Yes. And, you know, one of the great bass players of all time, without a doubt, one of the great musicians of all time, as in addition to being an amazing human being, uh, he is sorely missed, you know, uh, passed away a number of years ago. But, you know, his, touch and his sound was just uh, just you know it it was perfect Uh, you know everything he touched and played was perfect I I don't think I've ever I, I never you know played with him for years and years and years I don't think I've ever heard him play the wrong note ever Um, That's amazing. Mind blowing. And in addition, he was an incredible guitar player, a great keyboard player. He played accordion. uh, So just just amazing guy. Um, The snare drum sounds. We worked a lot on the snare drum sounds. and, And really, I think we pioneered a lot of those reverse gated 80s snare drum sounds. So that was a that was kind of a signature thing that we worked on. Uh, during that period of time,
1: I believe Hugh Padgham who mixed the record He worked on that reverse snare sound on Phil Collins in the air tonight and some of those genesis right. tracks So we were yeah. you know,
2: it was all it was kind of the uh, the uh you know It was the sound of the of the era, you know in a way.
1: Sure. Sure but
2: We had a lot to do our early records had a lot to do with developing that sound and and uh, and Here again on the on the uh, big bamboo album the next album that followed Bob Clearmountain engineered that and he and Mickey Curry our, our drum Uh, they spent hours and hours sampling various snare drums with different mic positions. They they were in the studio like long before we'd arrive and long after we had left, uh, just sampling and hitting drums with different sticks and like I said, uh, different effects uh, and some of those drum sounds, especially the ones that Bob Clearmountain created with Mickey Curry, I still hear those on records. They're they're almost like a you know a classic. Literally have become part of the fabric of, of produ- you know, of drum production.
1: Right. Well, this intro, forty three seconds in total it's long. What were we thinking? What, what was cool Well, it, it, I mean, <laughs> you just you, you wouldn't really do that at pop radio back then. And somehow you got you guys could you guys could get away with it here cuz again, this part's suspenseful. It's haunting. Yet this is not as a pop song, people dance to it. It's uplifting, but there's this like that that one note thing that hangs in the chorus, that high keyboard yeah, thing. Yeah. That is just builds and provides a tension. It's like a running th- theme through the song. It's awesome. That I like I said, that big snare hit comes in, real drums coming on verse one. Only out
0: at night, lean and hungry type. Nothing do, I've seen here before. Watching
1: She'll only come out at night, the lean and hungry type. Nothing is new. I've seen her here before, watching and waiting. Is she sitting with you, but her eyes are on the door? You know,
2: first of all, before I even go any further, it's breaking down the actual lyrics. OK, we're talking about a girl, right? Mm-hmm. But we're actually not. The, the, the man eater, the woman, the image of a woman is a metaphor for the city of New York. This song is really about New York City. That's what the song is actually about. Daryl and I, uh, you know, I, I, it was inspired by a woman who, who was incredibly beautiful, had the most filthy vocabulary on any human being that I'd ever heard. And I thought that <laughs> juxtaposition the of, uh, of her filthy mouth and her great beauty was just too much to ignore. Um, so that's really where the idea came from. But when Daryl and I s- sat down to write the lyrics um we were talking about it, and we said we don't want to write about a a, a terrible woman or a, a you know bad you know so, you know a, a distasteful female. Uh, we just didn't think that was cool. Um, but what we did is we used it as a metaphor for New York. New York is the city that will chew you up and spit you out, uh, and especially in the '80s, you know, in the, in that jacked up decade where more was you know the, that whole Wolf of Wall Street. You know idea that was going on and you know the idea of, of she's sitting with you But her eyes are on the door very typical of um, people who are uh, Who are shallow and people who? You know, go to a social event. You've probably experienced it. You know, they're talking to you, but they're looking over your shoulder to see who might be more important, or might be uh, more interesting, or might do. You know, might be a, a better connection for them. You know, <laughs> you know, we've all experienced things like that.
1: Yeah. Now, now you'd replace door with with cell phone. <laughs> uh,
2: yeah. There you go. Exactly. <laughs> we are talking to you and yeah. them looking down at their cell phone. Exactly. Yeah. That that's the modern version. Uh, but yeah. So so basically, just trying to capture that um, that that sense of you know shallowness and uh that sense of um there's always something better around the around the corner you know or something better is going to walk through the door at any moment
1: i love that metaphor uh total goosebumps right now man that is so that is so cool and from a writer's standpoint i would. I would love to be able to to put something down on paper that that, that is that cool, that is, you know, you, you obviously think it's a love song or about a woman, and and, and uh, you're speaking metaphorically about New York City. It's great. Again, the real drums come in here on verse one. It sounds like the vocals are doubled here, yeah. John, with a cool slap delay on the vocals. Maybe one's uh, one vocal's not affected and the other one is, but it is such a cool effect.
2: Yeah, I don't think, it's not an actual real double. It's an actual DDL that's set so tight that it's it's an apparent double. Uh, Daryl's never really liked to double his lead vocals. I double my lead vocals quite often uh, because I like the sound of my voice when it's doubled naturally. And I'm pretty good at it. I do it all the time. In fact, on the new, the new songs that I'm releasing now, I've, I've doubled my voice on a number of them. Uh, but anyway, yeah, it's a, it's a tight, it's a tight uh, delay that gives you the doubled effect.
1: Right, and a lot of guys would use that as a crutch back in the day, double, triple, quadruple vocals, because they couldn't sing, and we all know that John can sing marvelously, so. Uh, but I could I could definitely hear uh, something double there. The first half here, we got a uh, the drums, uh, real drums are in with the bass and the keyboards, and then we get to the second uh, part of verse 1. Uh, that staccato, clean reggae guitar, I'm calling it from the intro, comes back in here. Uh, it, it is so cool, and the keyboards here, the keys playing these big chords, that sounds like an electric piano here in the verses.
2: Yeah, it could be a CP-70. I'm not sure exactly what piano that was. We had a number of electric keyboards in the studio at the time.
1: So many have paid to see what you think you're getting for free. The woman is wild, a she cat tamed by the purr of a jag you are. Money's the matter if you're in it for love. You ain't gonna get too far, and I had to actually phonetically spell out jaguar <laughs> here. Uh, I'm, I'm uh, assuming that was intentional, of course. And that that becomes a hook in and of itself. Whose idea was that?
2: Oh, I can't I can't pin down who's who came up with the line. I mean, we were throwing out lines so fast. Um, you know, jaguar is the British what the way the British pronounce what the car that we call Jaguar.
1: I didn't know that. Yes, okay.
2: The British the the, the, the true British pronunciation. For that is Jaguar. Um, and uh, you know, obviously a she cat, if you look at the logo for a Jaguar car, you'll see yeah. that it's a it's a it's a cat of some sort, of, like a you know, a leopard or whatever. So yeah, I mean here here again, that's just uh, that's just a very clever line. I'd like to say that I came up with it, but uh I don't know, who knows? She's
0: gone. She's gone. Oh, i, oh, I better learn how to face it.
3: Hey, everybody. We got lots more coming up with John Oates after a few words from our sponsors.
1: With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
3: Dearly
0: beloved, we are gathered here today to – has anyone seen the bride and groom?
1: Sorry, sorry,
2: we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time.
1: No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
3: One Hit Thunder is a podcast where we celebrate and occasionally have a laugh about those bands and artists that had one song that most people remember. Although many musicians may reject the term One Hit Wonder, we beg to differ with their aversion to it because wouldn't we all love to have a beloved hit song? On One Hit Thunder, we're joined by interesting guests from the world of music and comedy to dive into one artist each week. Our back catalog runs deep with episodes about everyone from Wild Cherry to Snow to Tag Team to Harvey Danger, and a new episode comes out every Wednesday. Subscribe to One Hit Thunder wherever you get your podcasts and join in on the fun.
1: And now, back to the show. We get into the chorus, and, you know, the old adage, we've all heard it, uh, you know, don't bore us, uh, get, get to the chorus. Well, we're a minute and a half into this song, but you already get the chorus at the top, essentially. That sax is foreshadowing the melody. It's so moody. You get that high note in there at the top of the song that now comes back in the chorus. Oh, here she comes! Watch out, boy! She'll chew you up. Oh, here she comes! She's a man eater. Oh, here she comes! Watch out, boy! She'll chew you up. Oh, here she comes! She's a man eater. It's
2: pretty straightforward. I don't think you need to say much about that.
1: Yeah, what can you say about that, John? It's
2: pretty straight. <laughs> it's pretty straight ahead. You know, it, it is what it is. Um, and the man, like I said, the man eater can be anything you want it to be. If you think it's a, it's an evil woman and great if you think it's the city of new york well it adds a whole level of uh, a different level of meaning to to the whole song
1: And it's funny you get choruses sometimes huge hits and the lyrics are so highbrow and there's so many of them and then you'll get stuff like like this song i'll look at it on paper and go Wow, it's a really simple idea, but just the way you guys sell it, the way that it comes together with the with the rest of the rest of the story of the lyrics, it's absolutely genius. The oh here she comes, kind of panned right and left those vocals, and it's unison. Uh, Again, I talked about it. That high one note synth part is running all through chorus one here, uh, and those voices. The oh here she comes, is is that you on on those? It's all it's both of us. Um, That's both of you. We
2: had various techniques for doing our backgrounds. Sometimes. We had all, all kinds of different versions of, of what we would do. Like, since that's a unison part, um, we might have done it on two separate mics to have control over the EQ of the individual voices. And sometimes yeah. we do it on one mic. And sometimes we do the first pass on two, in, two separate mics and do the second pass on one mic. So it really just, we that might even be tripled for all I remember. I, I don't recall.
1: Yeah. It's probably tripled. Yeah, it, it sounds like there's a couple of voices of, 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 of each of you. And that part, you know, those backing vocals, when I got to this point in the song, so I'm now a minute and 50 seconds in after the chorus, I'm going, wow, because you guys are just so well known for your harmonies. I'm like, there isn't a harmony in this song yet. No, mm yeah. Yeah. Was there, do you remember those talks happening with anybody saying, you know what, we should put a harmony on the, oh, here she comes. Didn't need it. <laughs> didn't need it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, simple as that. But you're hauling notes. How did you know you didn't need it? Well, you guys yeah. throw harmonies on everything. Hey, uh, restraint
2: is the, uh, is the mark of, uh, of sophistication.
1: Okay, okay, we're going we're gonna to run with that. Uh, after Chorus 1, there's a four-bar reintro that just hangs out on that B minor. It doesn't move there. There's that synth flutter off to the left and that other synth from the top off to the right. And I notice here, John, there's no saxophone here. And this would have been a perfect time to bring that sax back. Was it ever there? Was it left out in the mix, or was there any talk of the sax I think being went there?
2: Went out for coffee, I think.
1: Um, went out for coffee. Yeah. I have no, idea. I have no idea. no idea. No, you know what though, and the reason I ask these questions, sometimes someone will say, "Yeah, it was in there, but within the mix, we it just didn't sound good." So I know I'm hitting you with some questions. This song's I, over 40 well, years old, but I don't but think, so. I don't
2: think so. If if it sounded good, I'm sure we would have had it in there somewhere. Where?
1: Gotcha. Okay. Well, this is technically verse three, but uh, I'm calling it verse two. It's a single verse, not a double verse like the first time. Oh. I wouldn't if I were you. I know what she can do. She's deadly, man. She could really rip your world apart. Mind over matter. Ooh, the beauty is there, but a beast is in the heart. There you go. I I don't even know what to say. It's a pretty good verse, though. It's a great yeah. verse. Now, were you living in New York City at this time? Oh, of course. We Daryl and I both, we both had apartments just a few
2: blocks from each other, and we'd get together and write. Yeah, and literally uh, a few blocks from the studio where we recorded, literally walking distance. Electric Lady, I believe we recorded that. I think we recorded part of that album. No, we recorded the whole album at Electric
1: Lady. And what was that energy like? I mean, you hear a song about New York City. I mean, obviously it it, it made it onto tape, but what was it like being around that energy and that commotion, especially with uh, your guys' celebrity at that point?
2: It was great. I mean, we could literally walk to the studio. I walked to the studio every day. It was right on 8th Street, you know, uh, between 6th Avenue and, uh, and, uh, and right in the, in the West Village. Um, there was, you know, shops on the o- outside, pizza places, uh, you know, Balducci's, a f- great food a place to have lunch or, or, or to order food. We spent a lot of money at that place. Uh, <laughs> I bet. But, you know, it was just very convenient because it was literally walking distance from where we lived.
1: Do you remember when you were tracking this song in particular? Do you remember anybody, you, you or Daryl or, or, or producer Neil Kernan or anyone saying, this is a hit? When did you know, or did you know?
2: You know, no, we didn't. We really didn't. We you know the thing is is a lot of people you know have always said, well, you know, you guys were the hit makers, you had you know some secret you know sauce to uh, turn out all these number one records. To be honest with you, we we put as much energy and time on every track on the record, on the album as we did. We didn't spend more time on maneater or uh, or uh, out of touch or any of those other songs. Uh, than we did on, on any of the songs. We just made them as best we could. Uh, when they were done, when they were done. Uh, and we went on to the next song and we didn't know what was going to be a hit. We really left it up to the record company to, uh, to, to kind of come up with uh, what they thought would be the most viable singles. And uh, in fact, we never even let the record company hear anything we were doing. They didn't hear the record until it was completely finished.
1: And by this point, with your track record, you had every right to be that way. They didn't need to hear it and get in there and, and muck it up.
2: It was a different period of time. Um, they didn't really record companies allowed you to 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 be creative and do what you do. and then their job was to figure out how to sell it. You know that was mm-hmm. their job uh, far far cry from the way the world is today. You know where you know record companies are. You know literally involved in the creative process from from the very beginning uh, I could never exist in the, in the modern world of, of, of a record label anymore but 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 it was a different different time you know it was a different era and uh, you know we were left to our own devices and
1: fortunately we were able to deliver. Well on this second verse the guitar is playing those clean chirps again. I absolutely love that. And going back and listening to this now, you could just totally say, yeah, I could see the the reggae thing that you were going
2: for. The only difference is the the, the, the guitar are, are playing backbeats. Right. They're not playing beats, <laughs> uh, Yeah. which is the signature of reggae. You know, so uh there there's a huge difference there. So um you know, backbeat back guitar is, you know, backbeat guitar is a staple of R&B songs, you know?
1: Sure, <laughs> uh, sure.
2: So that's not that, uh, to me, that's pretty pretty straightforward.
1: Well, talking about the bass part again, the, the line, She's Deadly Man, She Could Really Rip Your World Apart. There's this hooky little bass run that happens there. It's just so ripping. It's just so pocketed. <laughs> she could.
2: Everything, everything a T-Bone did was 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 tasteful and perfect. Uh, I can't I can't say enough about his his musicianship. The guy was just a, an exemplary uh, musician. Uh, There's very
1: few like that, you know? So awesome. Well, right out of verse two, we get into chorus two, which is the same uh, exact lyrics as chorus one. And uh, after chorus two, we get into the instrumental bridge for four bars. And it's holding on that B minor chord for these bars, it's not moving. Sounds like the Lynn drum comes back in without uh, analog drums.
2: There, uh, you know what? I'm gonna have to take your word for it. I can't. Hear okay, you.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's what it is. Uh, the bass is also in, and again, that high synth is holding that one note, followed by a 32-bar sax solo. of great delay you mentioned delays earlier you get involved a little bit lots of great delay and pre delays here reverbs on the sax and some of the other synths that are panned left and right John, it's moody as hell, this part. It's like atmospheric, but it's still danceable. You guys did something here that just has these elements of soul and R&B, but it was modern for the time with the production. Uh, It's just remarkable how how everything here uh, works so seamlessly. And then there's also like, it almost sounds like these little guitar scrapes with delays on them panned left and right. Were you doing little things like that too?
2: I can't remember that. That was probably something G.E. Smith did.
1: It's very cool, and and again, I noticed from this part, you know, after chorus two, that progression, we we get into the instrumental bridge for those four bars before the sax solo, just holding on that B minor. Then after that, it's the chorus progression for the next like minute and a half of the song. It never goes out of that chord progression, and. Was that a fear, or did it just feel as good to you guys then as it feels to everybody now, <laughs> how this song is?
2: You we know, Listen, if it felt right, it was right. We, we didn't overanalyze this stuff. I mean, you're analyzing this song, you know, a thousand times more than we would ever even have thought about it we just right. we just went with what felt right you know
1: a, a lot of times you know and i'll do this all of a song be like man i've been hanging out for a minute in the same progression <laughs> it's i i like this and then i'll show it to our bass player be like dude you're hanging out in the same progression for a minute can't we go somewhere <laughs> is, it, is it a good progression <laughs> well sometimes well if it's good you can hang out for an hour you know <laughs> yeah it's different good point Uh, well again from the sax solo out uh, it's the chorus progression here it never changes and basically I'm not going to read through all of these lyrics John but there's a lot of stuff here Uh, basically it's the chorus like five times Uh, the fifth line here the whoa here she comes we get the first true harmony in the song on comes i don't know if it's you or daryl that goes up there on a, on a higher note previously it was all in unison and then we get these watch out yeah the watch out," these little mm-hmm. the watch outs that happen those are panned hard right and left those sound like maybe there's a female voice there was there nope there was not it's just us singing falsetto falsetto wow that is so good because it it ushers in a different feel here at the end of the song. You're talking about that same chord progression, but there's out, there's new stuff constantly piling on here. Yeah. Was that something that uh, spur of the moment things happen in the studio? Do you remember? Or?
2: We just probably were listening and said, "Hey, feels like it needs something here. Let's let's try this." And we, we would just do it, you know.
1: Well, the sax solo uh, floats in and out here. And, and like I said, pretty much the kitchen sink here is at the end. All of the bells, the synths and delayed noises, all, all those parts, they cycle in here, right and left, they're coming out. And, and somewhere in here also, it almost sounded like Again, and it may have been your, your other guitar player, like like almost like those high string bends, like delayed, like maybe seagull noises that were kind of coming in and out.
2: Yeah, that, that was G.E. I'm sure G.E. Smith, I'm sure.
1: Okay, it's so good. And then near the end of the track, uh, at the four minute and nine second part, the song starts a slow fade uh, out, and the very last thing you hear is, "Oh, she's a man eater," uh, and the song song is faded out. Fade outs were, you know, have always kind of been a, a popular thing. Depending on the song, was the initial idea always to be faded out here?
2: Um, it just seemed right. I mean, here again, you know, uh, I'm I'm still doing fade outs. I know fade outs aren't aren't that popular in modern pop, but You know, I still do fade outs. Uh, It feels like, you know, if you've got a great chorus or a great hook going, you know, it's kind of nice to take it home with a long fade or, you know.
1: Mm -hmm. So the record H2O, you know, I know you said that you you put just the same amount of work into the album tracks as you did when it ended up being the singles. But do you remember getting the mixes back from Hugh Padgham? And listening and did Maneater stand out or was it still like hey this is a great solid record and you didn't really know you're gonna leave it up to the record label to decide
2: no I wouldn't say that it didn't stand out more than any any of the other songs Um, you know we knew it was good and we knew it had definitely had a special quality to it but you know after we started getting the mixes back you know the thing was we we always let uh, we always let the mixer Kind of get a first shot at it, you know. Yeah. Let them be. You know, it's nice to have, especially when you're so used to be, you know, hearing this song over and over and over again in the studio and being so close to it, uh, both sonically and, and everything. It's good to have a mixer who you trust, of course. Take a shot at it and see where they. What they do with it, and what they, you know, what, what they bring to the to the uh, to the, the original track, um, and then from there we would always get very involved. We'd always we'd let let the mixer kind of have his first shot at it, and if it we didn't feel it was going in the right direction, we would get very involved with very uh, specific direction um, and let them do it again, and or maybe they did come up with a, a cool you know perspective and approach in which case we would just help them refine it and a lot of times it had to do with um, with the level of the vocal uh, you know how loud should the lead vocal be over the mm-hmm. track you know in certain songs you know you want the you want the vocal to be tucked back into the track a little bit more to be integrated in into the actual rhythm track. And other songs, you know, where the vocal needs to be out front. Um, so we would we would really spend a lot of time that we we'd spend a lot of time with the panning and positioning of the backgrounds, how the backgrounds were spread. Uh, not so much on Maneater, because there's not a lot of backgrounds, but uh, on some of the more, you know, background heavy songs, like I Can't Go For That, for instance. You know, we spent a lot of time uh, manipulating the the sonic uh, picture of where, where the how the background vocals were uh, arranged, you know, in the stereo, in the stereo um, picture. So, uh, you know, stuff like that, um, you know, just really just uh, finishing touches, you know, icing on the cake.
1: One last thing, what was your, if you can look back now, what does it feel like, if you're able to describe it in, in 20 seconds, what does your life feel like from 1977 Rich Girl to Out of Touch in 84.
2: <laughs> well, we had a we had a flush of, of three songs. We had Sarah Smile, Rich Girl and She's Gone the re-release of She's Gone in the mid 70s. So, we had this uh, that was our first real flush of commercial success. But then the late 70s was a down period. We had a we made a live album, we made an album called Beauty on a Backstreet which was a mm-hmm. stiff. Um, we made an album called uh, Along the Red Ledge, which I thought was musically really good, but it wasn't that popular. And then we made an album called Ecstatic. So we had, you know, we went from having these three hits in a row to having no hits. But it was an interesting period of time because what we did was we developed a band. And we developed the 80s band that became the 80s band during that period of time. Uh, and so when we, hit the, when we hit the 1980 in the Voices album, we hit the ground running with an amazing band. And then we started writing songs. And the key to the whole thing was we began to produce ourselves. The, nice. So starting in 1980, we, we produced all those albums through the decade of the 80s. And that changed everything because we made the records exactly the way we wanted to make them. So that was the key to that.
1: And that is so beautiful. I'm glad you said that because you know that's back when labels, you know, they they would develop an act. And now, if you had three albums in a row that didn't sell, a label's not all of a sudden going to let you be the producer, you know. So that that uh, that that goes to show you that it's just completely different time, and it, it worked out beautifully for you. Before we break, John, I know this past March 17th, about two months ago, uh, you released a new single called "Why Can't We Live Together." If you'd like to let the listeners know what that's all about
2: well that's a cover of the Timmy Thomas uh, song that he did in 1971 It was an anti-war song obviously he wrote it uh, during the Vietnam conflict and um, it was uh, you know considering you know I've never been that overtly political when it comes to my music but uh, considering what's going on in the world with the Ukraine and and just the the protests that, that surrounded the last presidential election and so on and so forth I just thought it was a song that that needed to be uh, rediscovered and, you know, and reappreciated, um, So I pulled it out. Uh, I was always a fan of the original version, which was very stark. You know, it was just a B3, a drum machine and a vocal on the original version. And I wanted to make it my own. I put a lot of harmonies on it. I recorded a bunch of stuff on GarageBand at home. Most of the sampled uh, stuff is... The stuff that I did at home. And then I also put a very 70s uh, electric sitar part on it. Uh, cool. yeah. So it's just, a, it's really just a song that I felt that you know, that anyone who hasn't didn't know the original, hopefully, they can rediscover my version of it, because it's, it's a song that speaks for our time. And it's a, it's a song that's very powerful. And um, it's it's it deserves to be, um, be heard again.
1: Awesome. We'll definitely check that out out there. And anything else you'd like to leave the listeners with before we break?
2: Wow. Uh, just, uh, well, I just appreciate people uh, kind of listening to this uh, series of streaming singles that um, I'm putting out, and there's going to be a lot more to come. So uh, look, uh, hopefully people can uh, check out the, the, the songs as as they come out every month.
1: Awesome. Thanks so much, John. Hey, man, that was a really good interview. I
2: appreciate it. Tell me why,
0: tell me why. Why can't we
3: Well, I thought that episode was amazing. I can't believe we just had John Oates on Chris to makes a podcast. I can't wait to talk to Chris about that in the rap segment. That's coming up right after a few words from our sponsors. Hey, what's up? This is Blake Wyland. I'm the host of the tone mob podcast. It's a show where I interview guitar people about guitar stuff. We talk about their pedals, their amps, their accessories, their preferences, all that stuff, as well as a healthy dose of whatever comes up. Topics have ranged from aliens to addiction And anywhere in between. Oh yeah, and pizza. We're definitely going to be talking about pizza. So get the show wherever you're listening to this podcast at. Just search The Tone Mob in your search bar and it will pop right up. Come join us. We're having a lot of fun. Thanks for checking it out.
1: As we near the end of the show, here's a band you might not know. Welcome to this week's Band You Might Not Know. If you'd like your band to be considered for Krista Makes a Podcast... All you have to do is email your best song via MP3 only, and a short bio to ban you might not know at gmail.com. This week's featured artist is Dean Ford, a one-man dance pop rock machine from Portland, Maine. He's got a new EP out titled Dream Fever, and here's a snippet of a song from that record, VHS.
0: the rap with Chris and Chris.
3: So Chris, we do a songwriting podcast and we just had the gold standard of songwriting on the podcast. John Oates was just on the podcast. That that's incredible. Was it a pinch me moment for
1: you? I mean, yeah, of course. I'm like still kind of freaking out. My whole morning I'm pacing around. I'm just going, you know, I mean, this is like uh yeah, it's the gold standard to to think that this little Little podcast that could. The podcast we started three <laughs> years ago. I'm talking to John Oates. That's really cool.
3: Yeah, really, really awesome. You and I were on the phone earlier today just talking about the hits, the hits that John Oates has been involved in, Hall Oates. It's crazy the amount of hits that Hall Oates had, and this one being one of the biggest. This song is absolutely incredible.
1: Yeah, this uh, <laughs> this track uh, was their longest at number one, arguably their, their most popular song. Um, the song, uh, it exemplifies everything that's 80s, but it's not a song that you can write off as just an 80s song. As I told John, it has every element of Hall & Oates. They embrace the technology. They use it as a tool, not a crutch. I can't think of a better band that bridged the 80s how they did. And it's just, it's incredible.
3: Well, the most important thing is take away all of those, you know, you talked about the new technology at the time and take away all of the fancy studio tricks and whatever and just strip this song down to its bare bones it's still an amazing song
1: it's amazing the the progression is is relatively simple in the song uh there's not a lot going on from that aspect the 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 harmonies that this band is known for really restrained they don't come until the last chorus which is so odd you know looking back and going wait a second the whoa, whoa here she comes that part is in unison and i'm thinking Gosh, if you, if you would have asked me just out of nowhere, I hadn't heard Maneater in, I don't know, a year or something, like, is there harmonies in that part of it? I said, yeah, it's Hall & Oates. Of course there is. You know, this little things really jumped out and surprised me in this track.
3: It's the second time on this show we've had an iconic artist who harmonies are a huge part of them of what they do, yeah. where the harmonies don't come in until the very end. Huey Lewis, same thing, right? It wasn't until the very end that any harmonies came
1: in? Absolutely, and, and he was actually kind of kind of flabbergasted by that. I remember Huey saying, oh, I guess you're right. That That is kind of weird for us, you know, and it is. But um, but uh, this song, you know, something else we didn't really, I, I might have mentioned it briefly at the top, but you and I talked about it. This is like you're being chased, you know, it's yeah. suspenseful, you know. I'll, I'll say it again, I can't, I can't uh, stress enough that just how simple is it to take a keyboard with one note, B, and just hold it, you know. And that, that just one sequence note held out in those choruses and uh, intro part, it adds a suspense and attention. It is so cool. You brought it up several times in this episode. You
3: can dance to this song, but it's also kind of eerie. I said to you on the phone before we recorded this that the title of the song "Man eater, The music sounds like if there were no words or no melodies or, or or anything, just just the music. It sounds like something if you were hunting prey. It sounds like <laughs> a, a man eater or something. Yeah. Like the music perfectly matches the title. That's what these guys are so good at. Is like. That central theme of the song, just the music matches it per- perfectly. You make my dreams. Take that song, for example. Think about the music of that. Bum, bump, 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 bump. Mm-hmm. It just, it makes you feel like you make my dreams come true. That, that music itself, it's like they're masters of it. Once again, man, bringing it back to what I first said, the gold standard of songwriting. These guys, I put, the you know, John and, and Daryl, I put them at the top of the heap with anybody in the history of music when it comes to writing songs.
1: Yeah, and again, I, you know, I don't know how much this means to the listeners, but the fact that they did this to analog. This wasn't done with computers. They're able to come in. These guys didn't cut demos, which wasn't surprising when John said that. How could they? Okay, look at the string of hits. They were they were literally getting off tour, going into studio, recording another record, and and before the records even mixed, they were probably back out on the road. I mean, they were striking while it's hot. You know, most acts know that when you're that hot, you got to keep going. You look at the runs of a lot of these bands, you you don't want to lose it, you know. And these guys worked their tails off. Uh, The the proof is in the pudding with with how many hits they had. Uh, Just unreal. And... Let's talk about the story here, the metaphor of New York City built around the story that everyone can relate to, you know, watching and waiting. She's sitting with you, but her eyes are on the door, you know, and that could be male, female, anybody. I've been I've been talking to someone knowing that they're just waiting for someone to come through the door or they're looking at they're, they're not, they're, they're, they're hearing me, but they're not listening to me. Right. Hey, I gotta, I didn't bring, I was going to bring this up to him like, no, I'm just going to thank
3: him and let him go. But dude, when... When Punchline recorded an album in, in New York City in 2005. Uh, we recorded with these producers, Shep and Kenny, and the place we recorded was just full of Hollow Notes stuff, just everywhere. Promo stuff, records, posters. We're like, why do you have all this Hollow Notes stuff in here? I think the place we recorded was also Hollow Notes' manager's office ah. or something like that. I didn't want to. Bother him with that but yeah the new york city thing i was like that's right that there was all that Hall notes stuff around but hey chris one thing i i gotta say too the story here about perseverance and just making music you just brought it up a second ago john brought it up they had three hits in a row in the late 70s but then they didn't have any hits for a while mm-hmm. and they were putting out albums and they, they were doing their thing but then they kind of had a a second era of blowing up again. And that happened when they started producing themselves. Like Mm -hmm. that is to me, the ultimate story. Like that's the perfect ultimate story of, I want to follow those footsteps if possible. I mean, you know, you can't, you can't, guarantee you're going to have the early hits, but I'm just saying,
1: like, stick to or whatever they had, you know? When he's talking about, though, the lean years, after they had, you know, uh, Rich Girl and some of those early hits, we're really only talking about two or three years because... Kiss on My List in 1980 was a massive hit for them. So what, what may have seemed like a long period of time, looking back now, I mean, these guys were releasing record after record. It, they weren't waiting two, three, four years between albums. It was every year, the big acts back then. That's how, that's how it went down. And uh, I'm going to leave you with one thing here, Chris, before, before we uh, sign off here in a minute. Why did the grain farmer start listening to punk rock? I, I, I have no idea. He was tired of hauling Oats. Oh, wow. Wow. That's that's great. (laughs) And you could probably cut that out of here. If it does make it, then uh, I'm gonna look like the idiot. But uh I'll tell you one thing we don't tell jokes like that on the after party, do we, Chris? No, we tell much better ones than that. (laughs) That's right. If you want bonus episodes of this show, our other podcast, The After Party, where sometimes we talk about the episode we just released on Monday, other times we talk about whatever's on my mind or Chris's mind. You can get to that by going to chrisdemakes.com. Sign up for our supporting and get bonus episodes for the price of a cup of coffee every month, and I promise I won't tell horrible dad jokes like the one I just did.
3: I don't know if you're going to stick to that promise, Chris, but uh, yeah, ChrisDemakes.com is where you can go. Two more quick things I want to say about this episode before we sign off, Chris. One, G.E. Smith. G.E. Smith. I know. (laughs) I feel like that was kind of like just in passing that he was brought up. If you don't know who G.E. Smith is, I knew him growing up as the guy who plays guitar on Saturday Night Live. Yep. (laughs) Yep, G.E. Smith played on this. Pretty cool. Also, one more thing I wanted to mention, which you and I should probably (laughs) at some point reenact this. The album cover of H2O, the album that Man Eater is on, is one of the best ever. It is Daryl and John face-to-face. Everyone knows this album cover. <laughs> I just wanted to say, I think it's one of the greatest covers of an album ever. But uh, yeah, my, my last two little
1: words on uh, on John Oates and Daryl Hall right there. Well, this has been a lot of fun. Give me a follow on Instagram at Less Than Christy, and don't forget to join the Krista Makes a Podcast Facebook group. We'd love to have you. Want to thank, from the bottom of my heart, one of the coolest cats out there that i've had the pleasure of talking to mr john oates and we'll see you next week
3: it is ryan here and i have a question for you what do you do when you win like are you a fist pumper